This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Experience, respect for people's desire to simply get stuff done, and honest ease of use are the hallmarks of 37Signals products. Jason Freed, co-founder and president of 37Signals, including the open source Ruby on Rails programming framework, talks about his experiences in building Basecamp, Rise, Backpack, Campfire, to Dahlist, and the right board, which have made 37 Signals one of the most popular open source tools available today. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Uh, I don't have any slides. I'm just going to talk for maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then do some q and I've always found the Q&A is usually the most important or most interesting part of the conversation, and it's usually pushed off to the end if there's ever time at all. So I'm just going to kind of seed the discussion with some things, and then we can go into more detail when we get to the q and I'm going to talk primarily about how we work at 37 Signals um, because we do things a little bit differently. I want to talk about why we do things a little bit differently, not just that we do things differently because different for different sake isn't that interesting, but I want to talk about why. So a quick bit of introduction for those of you who don't know who we are, just to kind of set the stage. Um, we have some products, product called Basecamp, Backpack, Highrise, Campfire, and they're all web-based tools, web-based software for small businesses and small teams. And um, we have a small team of, we have 12 people now, so we're not as small as we used to be, but uh, we're still small. And um, we have some different techniques for building stuff. And I wanna talk about those things. So um, the first thing we don't do is plan. We don't plan anything. Um, well, that's not exactly true. We, we plan like, two days in advance. What are we working on the next couple days? And that's it. So when I say we don't plan, that also means that we don't do things like um, functional specifications documents. We don't do things like wireframes even. We don't do things like personas. We don't do things like flowcharts. We don't do any of that stuff that most people do when they're building something. And there's a few reasons why. Number one, um, I think that those things are holdovers from other disciplines. For example, if you're gonna be building a house or a bridge or a building like this, you need to really think about it first. You need to plan, because you're dealing with things like raw materials and physics, and stuff that's really hard to deal with and really expensive if you get it wrong. Uh, and you know, if you do it wrong, someone could die, in fact. So we're building software. People aren't going to die if our stuff goes wrong. It's not a big deal. Um, so since we don't have to deal with these things that everyone else has to deal with, like the physics and raw materials, um, we can just build stuff and figure it out as we go. We don't have to plan things out too much in advance. And, and we've actually found that planning leads us down the wrong path most of the time. Because the point when you know the least amount about something is before you've started. And the point you know the most about something is after you're done. 
And I think too many people are making decisions about what they're doing before they know anything about it, before they start. That's when most planning happens. That's when most people figure out all the features a product's going to have or all the things something is going to do. You don't really know what you're doing at that point. You kind of have an idea of sort of what you're doing, but you don't really know what you're doing. You're dealing in abstractions. And abstractions are dangerous things because they lead to an illusion of agreement. So if you plan out all the features your product's going to have, for example, Basecamp, if we thought about every feature Basecamp was going to have and spent a month or two coming up with this plan ahead of time, we would have probably agreed on a lot of things. But as we started building it, we would realize that we've actually, we were disagreeing. We didn't realize it, though, because we thought we were agreeing because there's an illusion of agreement. When we're all reading the same document, the same list of features, the same paragraphs, we might be reading the same words, but we're actually interpreting those words differently. And we found that the only way to reach real agreement, to really know what you're doing, is to actually start doing it, figuring things out along the way. So here's what we do. We have an idea for a product or a feature or anything like that. The first thing we do is we grab a piece of paper and a pencil, and we start sketching. And this is actually an abstraction as well, but it's the only abstraction in our process. We start sketching. And actually, I should say we don't use pencils. We use thick Sharpie markers, and I'll talk about that in a second. But we start sketching an idea. We don't write it down. We don't worry about details. We just sketch boxes. We sketch widgets for interfaces. We sketch random ideas about what this thing's going to do. So if we're building a messages section for one of our products, messages need something like a title and a body. So we kind of just make a big squiggly line, and a bigger squiggly line, and a button. And that's, that's kind of how we start thinking about these things. Um, and the reason we use big Sharpie markers instead of pencils or pens is because pencils and pens are too high resolution, especially early on. When you use a pencil or a pen to sketch something out, you're focused on the details. And the details simply don't matter right now. They do not matter when you're getting started. I've seen, and I've done this myself, seen lots of designers spend hours on a sketch trying to make it beautiful. Beautiful is not what you're after right now. You want to get something on paper quickly to get an idea in your head or get an idea out of your head. Then you want to go, this is what we do at least, you want to go straight to HTML and start building that screen. So you don't want to think about everything that has to be on the screen. You don't want to think about navigation. None of that stuff matters yet. You want to just start building the core of what that screen is going to be. So for example, again, taking the example of a messages section. Um, we knew a messages section pretty much had to have a, a subject and a body and a way to submit the message. Um, and so we start there. We start building that part of it. That's what we call epicenter-based design. When we take the epicenter of the page, what is the thing on the page that needs to be there, truly needs to be there, and if it wasn't there, it wouldn't be that page. Let's start with that first. So we, uh, we, in HTML, we don't go to Photoshop because Photoshop, again, is an abstraction. People don't use Photoshop when they use your products. You can't interact with a static Photoshop mock-up. You can't pull down a menu in a static Photoshop mock-up. You can simulate what that looks like, but you might as well just do the real thing. So we start with HTML. We start building the middle. We start building the epicenter, start building the messages widget. Once that's done, we can think a little bit more about what else could this possibly need. Well, maybe it could use a, a category pull down to assign a category to a message. So we add that, again, in HTML. Then we look at it again. Does this make sense? Is this good enough? It is good enough. OK, let's move on to the next thing. Or if it's not good enough, what else does it need? So we're not guessing about what it might need on paper. We're guessing about what it might need because we're using it. Once we figured out everything that it needs to do by using it, we can move on to the next thing. And that's how we build our products, with no plan. We simply go in there, and we start using it, and we start building it. And eventually, usually in a couple months, you've figured out all the most important things you need to build. You've built those things, and then you move on, and you launch the product. And you recognize that there's a lot of stuff it could possibly do, and it maybe should do, but it doesn't need to do initially. So here's how the process works. We design the HTML screens, 
and then we hand those off to the developers, to the programmers. The programmers then hook this stuff up, and then we start using it. The programmers can push back as well, but fundamentally, our products are driven through design. They're not driven through engineering. They're not driven through programming. A lot of teams do the programming first, and then it's the designer's job at the end to come on and paint a pretty picture, and that just doesn't work. I think most people know that, but a lot of teams still do that. So we do everything from the interface first. The interface drives everything that we do. Then the programmers plug it in. Then we go back and forth. We make tweaks. We make adjustments. We add more and more and more. And then a few months in, we launch the thing. And if we're working on something for more than three months, we've worked on it too long. It's time to launch it. The longer it takes to, to, uh, to develop something, the less, or less likely it is that you're going to launch it. And that's what we found. When you spend months and months and months and months on something, it's not going to get launched. It's not going to get done. And if it does, it's going to be crap. Because what happens is people lose interest in things that take a long period of time. Human beings do not like to work on things that take a long period of time. And if you want to talk to really disgruntled people, find the people who've been working on a project for eight months, for nine months, for a year, for two years. Those people are not really that excited about what they're doing. They're simply doing what they need to do to get that stuff done. And that's not the kind of products that we want to build, and I don't think that's the kind of products you want to build. You want to build stuff that people are always excited about working on. And that means you've got to keep the time frame for these projects really short. Um, so an entire project might take three months to do, but each individual part of it, we don't want to spend any more than a week or two on it. And again, at the end of a week or two, if it's not done yet, we cut out all the stuff that it doesn't really need and just, launch, and just move forward to the next thing. Recognize that we can always come back later and get the other things done. So fundamentally, we're getting rid of abstractions, we're diving in, we're starting to work on something, we're seeing what we can get done without having to really worry about the planning so much, moving and moving and moving and iterating and iterating and iterating until we have something that seems about right, we launch it after three months. Now let me talk a little bit about how the teamwork, the teams work together, because typically we, we have 12 people, 37 signals, but only one or two people ever work on a project at the same time. So we don't put our whole team on something. We found if we do that, it actually slows things down. So we build products that only two people can build. And if, it takes, if we think it takes more than two people, we don't add more people to it, we take things away from the product. So we don't scale up headcount to match scope, we scale back scope to match headcount. We think when you have two people working on something, possibly three occasionally, um, you're going to build types of tools that actually make sense, that are simple, because you simply can't screw them up. You can't add too much stuff. And this is the problem that most teams have, is they do too much stuff. It's not that they're not doing enough, it's they're doing too much. They think they need to do more than they really need to do. But if you keep your teams as small as you possibly can, one or two people, you can only do so much. And when you can only do so much, you end up building something that's simpler. You launch something simpler. You launch something that's generally clearer, that can only do a few things. Then you get real feedback from real people who use your products. They tell you what they need, and then you can think about adding things on top of that. But you're much better off with a much simpler core because it makes it much easier to move and to change than to make a ton of assumptions and add a whole bunch of stuff before you launch it uh, and then find out that you made the wrong decisions because backing out of things is a whole lot harder than adding new things on. As far as working with the teams go, um, we tend to stay away from one another. So we found that interruption is the big uh, biggest enemy of productivity that there is. And the, the biggest opportunity for interruption is when everybody's in the same office together. So uh, what happens is, is that people don't actually work during the day anymore. They work at night. They work at morning, in the morning, or they work on the weekends. They go to the office during the day, but they don't actually work during the day. They have meetings, they have conference calls, they have all this stuff. That's because everyone's together. And when everyone's together, you tend to interrupt each other. And you don't really mean to be malicious, but when you call someone's name across the office to have them check something out, or you call a meeting because you can, because everyone's around, you tend to do these things. 
And then instead of a work day, you tend to have work moments. You have a half hour to do something, and then you have a meeting, then you have 45 minutes and something else happens. I mean, you can't get work done like that. We all know that. You can't get work done. Creative people especially cannot get work done in a half hour. And not only that, but it's not even truly a half hour because five minutes before you have to do something, you start, start ramping down and you start have to ramp back into your work. So the thing is, is that you can't just like go to a meeting, come back and start working. You go to a meeting, come back, you get settled, you kind of slowly get into the flow of things. And uh, before you know it, you have another meeting, so you're ramping down, so you just get nothing done. And this is what happens over and over and over in the workplace today. And one of the reasons why, I think, is because the modern workplace is based on openness. I actually think there's way too much collaboration going on. And the modern workplace is too much about open spaces, and you know, no one has offices anymore, some people may, but most people have these big open spaces, and it's all about, hey, we can collaborate a lot, it's gonna be great. Well, it also means that you don't get work done. So we tend to stay away from one another. Even though we have, we have, so we have 12 people, six of which are in Chicago, six of which are in six other cities around the world, and the people who are, the six people in Chicago rarely see each other. We see each other maybe once a week. Instead, what we do is we collaborate passively. So we use our tools, you can use whatever tools you use. Uh, we post messages, we use instant messaging types of things. Um, we use group chat. We use things like that because those things can be put aside. If I don't want to pay attention to a group chat right now, I can put it aside. But I can't put aside, if I'm in a physical space, I can't put aside someone saying, hey, Jason, come check this out. Hey, Jason, come check this out. Hey, Jason, come check this out. So we are relying more on, on passive collaboration. By collaborating all the time, we're talking to each other all day long, but not in real time. We're talking to each other when we have time. We post a message. We respond to a comment. But most of the time, we put all that stuff aside and actually work. We actually get stuff done. That means we can get home, uh, go home at 5 o'clock. It also means that we don't work on Fridays. So we do four-day work weeks. And what we found is that we actually get just as much work done in four days than we used to get done in five days. And everybody has a three-day weekend now. Everybody's happier when they come back to work on Monday. And everyone's work actually seems to be better because they know they have less time to waste during the week. Very few of us actually work eight hours a day anyway. We're working a few hours a day if we're lucky. We might, again, be at the office or do, be doing stuff, but we're not actually working most of the time just because we have other stuff going on. But when you have fewer days to work, let's say four, you tend to cut out all the extra stuff that you might have done before because you knew you had an extra day a week. Now we have fewer days, so we do more work. We get more work done. We're more productive. Um, another thing we tried to do recently, 37 Signals, which has worked really well, is pay for people's hobbies. So uh, our system administrator wants to learn how to fly a plane. So I, by the way, I think that's a bad idea. Um, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> So our system administrator wants to learn how to fly a plane, so we're helping him pay for flight lessons. Someone else wanted to learn how to play the banjo, so we're helping her pay for the banjo. Uh, someone else wants to take photography lessons, we're helping them pay for that. And the idea is that you can certainly give people a raise or a bonus or whatever, but they're not going to spend it on something that they really want to spend it on usually. They're going to spend it on stuff that they end up having to spend on. Um, so when you can, as a company, get behind your people and say, we want you to be interesting people outside of work, we want you to do things that you really love to do, we're going to help you pay for that, it encourages them to do that. If we would have given Mark, who's our sysadmin, a $5,000 raise, he wouldn't be taking flight school with that $5,000. That $5,000 would go into other stuff. Um, but he's taking flight school because we said we're going to pay for half of that, and he's going to do it. And that's how it works. So we've been doing that as well. Um, we also gave everybody a credit card uh, with no limits and no uh, controls and no rules. So if you want to go buy yourself dinner, you can do that. Um, if you want to go buy yourself a car, you can do that, but you'll be without a job. But you can do that. 
Um, but the point is, is that we don't, have, we don't set up, and this is, this is kind of the point, is that we don't set up these rules ahead of time. We're not about control. And I think every time you attempt to control other people, you start losing their trust, and they start losing their trust in you. We say we trust you to be responsible people. And if you do something with the card that we don't really think was a good idea, we'll talk to you after the fact. We're not going to say you can't, 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 can't. We're going to say do what you want to do as a reasonable person, and we have had no problems since. We've not had a single problem with any spending. Um, but if we, would have had, if we would have had all these rules, we would have just instilled fear in people. Oh, my God, can I really do this? Should I really do that? And you start, people start backing off, and they don't think that you trust them. They're not going to trust you back. And so we've been trying to trust people, and that's part of the idea of working remotely is we're actually able to trust these people to get the work done. A lot of people would say, well, how do you, how do you know people are getting their work done if they're not nearby? Well, you know they're getting the work done because the work's getting done. It's not that you're evaluating the work because you're local, you're physical. You're evaluating the work because that's all you have to evaluate somebody on, which means that it's actually easier to evaluate someone's skill and someone's contributions when all you have is the work. You don't have anything else. You don't have their personality. You don't have their, God, this guy's been in the office every day and he's becoming early. You don't have that because that doesn't really mean they're getting work done. You only have the work. And so that's been a really great way for us to evaluate uh, people's work. Um, a couple of other things I want to I want to mention that we can kind of start talking about some of these things in more detail. Um, in terms of getting the word out about what you're doing, this is something that uh, we've been working on for quite a while, and we take a lot of our inspiration from famous chefs. So um, we don't spend money on advertising. We've spent maybe I think probably less than thirty thousand dollars over five years on advertising. Um, we have a few million people who use our products now. Uh, we're very profitable and things are, are going really well for the business. And we've done this without spending money to get those customers. And the way we've done it is by teaching, is by sharing, is by instead of outspending the competition, we're out teaching the competition. We're out contributing the competition. And that's what great chefs who you know, names that you know, do. People like Emeril Lagasse, Mario Batali, Bobby Flay, even Rick Bayless here in town. Um, some of you may know these chefs. Um, and it's not necessarily that they're the best, best, best chefs, they're all very good. But the reason you know them and trust them is because they teach you something. They're on TV saying, hey, I'm a professional chef, but here's exactly what I do. It's not that hard. Just follow along. Or, hey, you know what? I have all these secrets. They're called recipes, and you can have them for 20 bucks. Here's my, here are my recipes. Take them. You know, they're not afraid that somebody's going to take their recipes, watch their cooking show, and open a restaurant next to them and put them out of business. That's just not how it works. Yet businesses typically are afraid. I feel like I'm spitting into this. Sorry. Uh, businesses are typically afraid of sharing. They think that everything has to be a secret. Everything's proprietary, and if they give anyone some information, someone's going to use it against them. That's just not how it works. You're much better off sharing and sharing and sharing. So we have been blogging everything about our company, all of our ideas, good and bad, success stories, failures. Whatever we do, we, we do it, in per, we do it out, out in public, basically. There's only a few things we keep to ourselves. Revenue numbers are one and a few other small things, but mostly... All of our internal process, all of our internal ideas, everything that we do, we share with everyone we possibly can. We wrote a book about it called Getting Real, which is all about what we do, how we do it. We're not afraid that someone's going to read that book and put us out of business. What we're afraid of is that people aren't going to know who we are. That's what, that's what you should be afraid of. Not that someone's going to take that against you. It's that no one's going to know who you are. So by sharing and contributing, we, we wrote something called Ruby on Rails, which we open sourced. Um, we're giving away as much as we possibly can, yet we have something to sell, which is important. A lot of businesses these days are giving stuff away with nothing to sell. We have something to sell. But you want to get out there. Whatever you know how to do, if you're a web designer, if you're a developer, if you're a graphic designer, whatever you are, think about how you can share everything that you know about what you do and don't be afraid that someone else is going to take that and use it against you. You should be afraid that no one's going to know who you are. 
So that's something about marketing that I wanted to kind of touch on. Um, a few other things I guess I could, I could mention, some other things that we do. Um, we keep an eye out for certain words that we use. So when we collaborate, uh, we, we all use, I mean, we all talk to each other. We all use different words. But some of the words that we use are so common that we don't even pay attention to them anymore. Yet these are the words that destroy projects. These are the words that cause things to be late. They cause political battles inside your office. Um, they cause animosity or generate animosity between your, your, your coworkers. Words like need, just, only, can't, easy. These simple words, these, they're all, all having to be four letters, but these simple words are words that really cause things to go wrong. For example, when you say, we need to do this before we can launch, or we need to do this or the client's not gonna like what we've done, or we need, 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 need. Well, you don't really need. You really, really don't need to do that. You might wanna do it, or you might like to do it, but when you use the word need, it kind of shuts down all conversation because it's an absolute. And so we try not to use words like, we need to do this. There are some occasions when that's, when that's true, but very, very few times do you really absolutely have to do something. Easy is a word that people use to describe other people's jobs. So we don't use the word easy. We don't say, oh, that should be easy, go do that. Or wouldn't that be easy if you could just do that? We don't say things like that. When you say something like that, you're making way too many judgments about someone else's job, someone else's work, what actually goes into doing something. There's all these hidden assumptions you're making when you use the word easy. So we don't use that word. Just and only are other words that are similar. Like, oh, it's just one more thing, or it's only one more feature, let's do that before we launch. It's never just one more thing or only one more thing. It always tends to be more and more and more. So there's a lot of stuff hidden behind the idea of just and only. So we kind of watch out for those words. We do use these words occasionally, but keep an eye out for your conversations, your emails or IMs or however you guys talk in meetings or whatever it might be for words like just, need, only, fast, easy. Um, and you'll find that if you can kind of cut back on those words, you're gonna find that your projects actually run a lot smoother. Um, and it, they're simple words, but it's really easy to ignore them because they are so simple and they are so common. Um, I don't know, th those are kind of some of the ideas I want to throw out there. And we can kind of touch on any, so, any one of these ideas or some stuff that I haven't talked about. I'd be happy if anyone has any questions about stuff I haven't talked about. Um, but I feel like I was hopefully able to seed the conversation. We can kind of take some Q&A and see where it goes from there. Anyone have any questions about any of this stuff? Yes. I will. Yes. Can I have a job is the question. Well, we're, we're not hiring right now, um, but uh, send me an email and we'll, we'll put you on file, as they say. Um, no, we're, you know, one of the things that we, we don't do is we don't hire very much. Uh, we do have 12 people now, which is a little scary because we've been at six or less for quite a long time. Um, but here's a little bit of an advice about hiring. Hire only when it hurts and after it hurts, basically. Don't hire in anticipation of someone you think you might need down the road. Hire when you can't do it anymore. That's when you need to hire. And try not to hire for positions that you aren't doing already. This is something I think a lot of people go wrong with. They start a new business and they go, okay, we need a VP of marketing, we need a VP of biz dev, we need you know, CTO, all this stuff. They haven't done any biz dev yet, they haven't done any marketing yet, they don't even know what the position means because who knows, you don't even have anything yet. So once you start doing too much of your own like business development on your own and you simply can't do it anymore, then you need to hire someone. But don't anticipate that you need to hire someone when you haven't done that work yet because you won't really know what that job entails. You won't really be able to describe it and it's really hard to hire for something you don't know anything about. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll go aisle first then we'll move in. So this question always comes up, do you have any examples of using getting real on a client project? Um, 
We do, but let me, let, me, let me kind of step back a little bit and talk about another way to do this getting real stuff with clients. So when we used to, we used to be a website development company. And in 2003 or four, we switched over to doing software by accident. We needed a tool to manage our own client projects because we were getting really, really busy. And we were using email, which is what most people use, and it sucked and it was a mess. It works like for one minute and then it doesn't work anymore. Um, and so we weren't really happy with any of the tools that existed out there at the time, so we built our own. We started using it for our own clients. And they said, hey, I need something like this for my own business. I have my own projects to manage. So, you know, can you sell this to me? And we said, no, but we said, maybe we could. So we turned it into a product. And about a year later, about 2005-ish, it was making more money than our website design business. So we stopped doing website design. But before that, so when we were doing website design, when I first started doing website design, I thought that you had to write these huge, massive mammoth proposals. They had to be 20 pages, glossy, all this bullshit about whatever. I mean, you know, our process and proprietary, you know, all this crap. Um, we had like an acronym, I, actually it was IDEA, funny enough. Um, like investigate, discover, all this crap. You know, you guys probably have these things. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so um, we, we used to do all these things, right? And I just started getting lazy. I'm like, I don't want to do this stuff. It's BS, first of all, and it takes too long to write a proposal. And I can't see any correlation between the length of a proposal and the products we're winning. So I just started cutting stuff out. I started saying, I don't need to do all this stuff, all this process stuff. I thought I did, but I, maybe, maybe we didn't. So I started cutting the proposals down to like 10 pages, and then eight pages, and six pages, and five pages, and four pages. And you know, it didn't seem to matter. We still kept getting work. Because look, when you hire, I hate saying look, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Um, I hate when people say that, look. So I'm not gonna say that ever again. Um, <laughs> now what do I say? No, so um, <laughs> C, uh, no. Um, when you hire somebody to do anything, like if you're hiring someone to do a kitchen renovation or bathroom renovation or whatever you're doing, what do you do? You get the proposal and you look at the price. And you go, I've already talked, I, I've already asked this person for a proposal because I trust them enough. Like, I just wonder how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. So our proposals ended up being one page. Like, you know who we are. You contacted us because you know who we are. You know the kind of work that we've done. Here's a link to our website. You can check it out. It's going to cost $25,000 and take six weeks. And it worked. So we didn't find ourselves losing work over a one-page proposal. And it also set us apart. So in some ways, the getting real stuff is more about that when it comes to client work, which is get rid of all the stuff, this process stuff that you think you need to do, and just focus on what people really, truly want, which is like the price and the time frame. And you can put a few extra things in there, but you don't really necessarily have to. Do you have a follow-up on that? Sure. Sure. How do you uh, explain what's in the 25,000 or whatever? Um, here's what we used to do. Uh, we used to basically say, we're going to give you $25,000 of work, and it's going to take eight weeks, and we know what you need to get done, and we're going to do it. And we're going to deliver the best possible solution we can in that period of time for that amount of money. And that's honestly what we did. And some people say, you can't do that. Well, you can. You can do it. Uh, it works. It worked for us. Um, our feeling is, first, first of all, we also never said we're going to deliver three options or ten. We do, always did one option. That was it. We used to do three options, and we found out three options doesn't work because they take a little bit from this, a little bit from that, a little bit from that, and then it ends up with Frankenstein design. It sucks. You know how it goes, too. So we just said we're going to do one design. This is what we're going to do. We're going to put all of our time into one solution. That's what you're hiring us to do, and that's what we did, and it seemed to work fine. So some people aren't receptive to that. I completely understand that. Um, but you don't also have to hire every client. And that's something that you don't really hear about. Is clients usually hire you, but you need to hire them back. You need to work with the kind of people that you feel comfortable working with. So if they don't get your point of view, don't work with them. 
because it's going to be miserable, and eight months down the road, you're not going to have anything you're proud of showing from that project. And that's all you have as a creative firm is the work you've done, and your ideas, of course, but the work you've done. And if you keep doing work that sucks, because you're working with clients that aren't compatible with you, you have nothing to show. It's terrible. So um, find the kind of people that understand what you're, what you're all about, and it's not easy, but you can do it. We'll go next over there. Yes. That's a good question. By the way, I always look at things like this. This podium is really poorly designed because it's actually like the, the top is slanted slightly, so like a bottle of water will just fall off if you're not careful. Anyway, um, that's no one's fault that's here, of course, but I was just saying as an observation. Um, uh, the words that we use to keep the conversation going, since we don't use words like need, just, can't, only, whatever. Um, the, 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 one of the words, one of the phrases that we use is PDI, please do investigate. So that's kind of what we say. So if someone has an idea, let's just stop talking about it and check it out, investigate it. So spend an hour or two figuring out if it would actually work or not or what's involved. So our whole thing is progress and morale, or like morale is based on progress and, and, and momentum. You have to keep people doing stuff. So if people are arguing about something, I'll just be like, just do it. I mean, I always just say, just do it, do it. Someone do it, let's do it, let's shut up and do it. And that's what I always say when people are just talking about things too much. Uh, because again, you don't, you don't know if something is gonna work until you've built it. You just don't know. You can guess, and that's okay, but until you actually have something real, it's really hard to reach real agreement. It's really hard to really evaluate something accurately until you have something that's real to look at and real that you can use. So it's always like, just do it. Just try it. Let's try it and see what happens. Let's not take too long. That's another thing, is that we try not to take very long on things we do. So an investigation or like an attempt or whatever takes an hour or two. What can we get done in an hour or two? Let's see if we can make any progress. If we like the progress we made in an hour or two, we could probably make a lot more progress in a day or two. But after an hour or two, sometimes the idea, this is, happens all the time, the idea that you're like so passionate about, you think is going to work, you start working on it like this doesn't work. Um, but you could have discussed it for two hours and made your case and pleaded your case and all this stuff for two hours, and before you know it, it doesn't really work. So we'd rather just get in there and start doing something and seeing what happens and discovering quickly if it works or not. Um, yes? Yes? So the question is, what do we, when we said we stopped giving clients multiple options, what do we mean by that in a proposal? Um, so for example, uh, you know, we used to do website design, so it was like, you know, we'll give you three different variations of the homepage, or, or when we did some logo stuff, we'll give you 10 logos to choose from or whatever. We just said, we're gonna give you one page or one logo. Whatever it is that we're doing, we're gonna give you one. We can spend 30% of our time, or 33% of our time on three different things, and we're not really gonna spend a lot of time on any one of those things, so it's not really gonna be that good. Or we can spend all of our time on one thing. And so that's what we did. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that you think it wouldn't work, but it works. It works when you set that expectation up front. I think Paul Rand always used to do this, too. Paul Rand, there's a great, there's a great uh, video somewhere on YouTube, I think, of Steve Jobs talking about Paul Rand, I think, when Paul Rand did the uh, Next logo. And Paul Rand is just like, I will give you one thing, and that is all I do. And that was his thing. And some people like that and some people don't. Steve Jobs loved that because he loves that kind of thinking. Like, I will put all my energy into one great thing. Um, but again, it doesn't work for everybody. But we found that a lot of clients were actually quite receptive to it. When you make the case, you can't just say, I'm going to give you one. When everyone else is saying, I'm going to give you five things, and then you're the one company that's going to give you one thing, it sounds like a disadvantage. But if you make your case as to say, well, they're going to give you five things, which means they can't really spend that much time on any one of them. Are they going to be any good? No, they're not. If they're going to be any good 20% of the time, what are you paying them all this money to, do, you know, to work on? So, you know, we're basically saying we're going to take all of our energy and put it into one great idea, and that sells more than you might imagine. Yes? 
Yeah, it's okay. Exactly. So just to repeat that, um, it's not that we have one great idea in our heads and we just go in that direction. It's that we do a lot of variations on our own, um, tweaks, adjustments, whatever. And then at the end, we make a value judgment about which one we think is, is the one to present. Because if you present two things, one's good and one bad, the clients can pick the bad one. Always happens. <laughs> always. Always happens. They are picked. Oh, God, why'd they pick that one? That's what always happens. So don't show them something you're not totally enthused about. Uh, yes. I missed the, how do you decide when it's, oh, and everyone coughed like at the same time again. No one coughed. Repeat your question, please. Okay. Okay. When do we meet face-to-face -face and not just offline or online? Um, so we only meet, honestly, like the whole company meets once or twice a year. We just did last week, we were in Maine together. We all flew out to Maine and had like a four-day thing where we kind of got together. Um, but in terms of people in Chicago, we rarely all get together, maybe once a week for lunch or something like that. But the people who are working on a project will occasionally get together, really, truly occasionally, once or twice a month maybe, when they're working on something together. The way we work is, again, we're just, we use this thing called Campfire, which is a tool that we built, which is a real-time permanent chat room where you can upload images in real time and share files and code in real time and all this stuff. So if someone's working on an interface design, they'll like design it and they'll upload it to Campfire and we'll all see it. We can all leave our feedback and they can make a change and upload it again. It's very real-time collaborative in that way. Um, and there's just not much benefit to actually being physically together in that situation. Um, but we do get together occasionally, but it really is always the last resort. Meetings are incredibly expensive. This is something people don't think about when they think about meetings. People think they have a one-hour meeting. Um, you can only have a one-hour meeting if it lasts one hour and there's only one person in the room. If you have a one-hour meeting and there's five people in the room, that's a five-hour meeting. If you have 10 people in the room, that's a 10-hour meeting, even though it's only physically one hour. You're taking 10 hours of productivity away total, one hour per person, 10 people, for that one hour. Is it really worth it? I mean, is it really worth taking 10 hours of productivity away to have this one discussion that could probably be had in five minutes anyway? Or a few minutes, or it could be done uh, passively via you know, email or a message board or something like that. Meetings are incredibly costly. And they also procreate. Once you have one meeting, you have another one. And you have another one and another one and another one. And it becomes so easy to do. And that's what ends up happening. So we just try and stay away from each other. And we only get together when it's truly, truly the last resort. You just know when it's that time, when like something is not working. There's no, like, I, there's no real good answer for that other than like, fuck, let's get together and meet. Sorry, I always drop the F-bomb at least once. Uh, so let's just, we gotta, this is just ridiculous. Let's just get together and, and like talk it over for a few minutes. And another thing is that a lot of meetings are, um, we like to think about meetings as like TV shows. That's the, wrong, that's the wrong way to think about them, which is that most meetings last 15 minutes or an hour. I'm sorry, 30 minutes or an hour, just like TV shows. And the main reason for that is that most scheduling tools like let you schedule in half-hour blocks, mostly, or hour blocks. You can sort of do 15 minutes, but it's just easier. It always, I think, defaults to an hour or a half-hour, and that's how meetings are scheduled. So that's what people do. They sit in a room for a half-hour, even though it only takes two minutes to decide on something. But they're blocked off for a half-hour, so you spend a half-hour. So we don't schedule meetings. If we need to get together, like, we'll be like, oh, let's just get together. And so we'll like, drive somewhere and go get together and then like leave quickly, like once we've figured the thing out, we move on.
So it really, it, there's no science behind it. It's just, you feel it. Like, this is just, we need that personal connection right now. And we're all really good friends and everything. It's not like we hate each other. We just know that we get more work done when we're actually apart than when we're together. We'll go uh, in the back, and then we'll come forward. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So how do you deal with clients who want to design, like want to call the shots, basically? Well, a couple things. First of all, they are paying. So it's understandable that they are going to feel like they can do that. But it's also your fault if they don't, I mean, if they end up calling the shots. They're hiring you. If you hire a plumber at your house, you're not going to tell that plumber how to do the work. You're going to, like, have the plumber fix the pipe because the toilet's overflowing. Like, you're just going to stay out of it. But that's because the plumber has, has commanded this level of respect that you trust them to do what they're going to do because you don't know anything about it. And even if you did know anything about it, you're hiring them because they, they have this, this, this presence about them. That industry and the electricians too. The design industry is terrible when it comes to respect. And the, the design, designers always like cry about, and I did the same thing, cry about, well, you know, the clients, uh, you know, oh, God, we can't get anything done right. Uh. And it, well, the reason is because you don't command respect. You need to tell the client, this is what we're doing because this is the right way to do it. I'm a professional here. I know what I'm doing. This makes sense. I've seen this done before. You have to make your case. You really have to... You have to fight it, and don't be afraid to fight. Like, the idea that clients gonna fire you because you're, you're pushing back, no, they're not gonna fire you, they're gonna respect you more. Not, now, in all, you can't do this all the time, you have to pick your battles, but there's certain battles if you know something's just gonna be wrong, you need to really step up. And there's other things where it really doesn't matter, and most of the stuff we all do, actually, unfortunately, really doesn't matter. Like, it could be this way or that way, it's not a huge deal, but there are some things, clearly, that do matter, and you need to stand up for those things. So. Um, I don't mean to pick on you to say like it's your fault. I'm just saying like any designer who lets their client push them around, it is ultimately their fault. It's their fault that they're letting their client push them around. But they also have to understand that the client's paying, so they do have a say. You can't shut them down, but you need to incorporate their ideas and kind of, you know, the other thing you can do is 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 if a client's screaming about three or four things, like pick the thing that least that matters the least and give them that entirely. Right? And then, okay, then, you know, oh, I, I just gave you this, and they're going to give you more leeway on something else. They just want, look, they just, I said it again, sorry. They just want something. They want their say in this somewhere. They want their fingerprint in this somewhere. So give them their fingerprint where it matters least. And that's really all they're looking for. They're looking to get involved somewhere because they're paying and they want to be involved. Um, so push back on most things, but give them something. I think you'll find that it works pretty well. Yes. Yeah, so the company's evolved. How did that happen? It, everything we do happens by chance, I swear to you. Um, so when we first started doing the web design design, like I was saying earlier, uh, we weren't really happy with the, the tools to manage our projects. Um, and uh, we built our own, and that became popular, and we released that, and then we stopped doing client work, and we started doing software. Um, and then uh, we realized that the product base camp that we built was actually overkill for a lot of things. So we needed something simpler to keep track of, simpler loose ends, all these loose ends around the, the office and stuff. So we built this thing called Backpack and turned that into a product. And um, we built this thing called Campfire because we were all remote and we weren't really working, there were, weren't able to work together in real time because instant messaging is great for one-on-one, -on -one, but it's not good for groups, so we built Campfire. And uh, then we started talking a lot to a lot of people in the press and we were forgetting who we talked, who we talked to and what conversations we had and who we needed to follow up with next. So we built this thing called High Rise, which lets you keep track of who you talked to, what you said, and what to do next. Um, so we're always scratching our own itch and recognizing that there's nothing special about us. 
We're a small company who needs these simple tools to get a lot of stuff done. And if we need them, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of other companies like us need them too. Uh, and so we just turn them into products and put them on the market and that's what happens. So the evolution is, is really just scratching our itch constantly and doing, the, you know, doing things that we're happy with. There's a lot of things that some of our customers want in our products which we'll never add. And, and some people think that means that we're arrogant or we don't listen to our customers and that's not it at all. We listen to all of our customers. Um, but if two or three or four or five or even 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 wants something, that doesn't mean it's, for, it's the best decision for everybody. So we always have to innovate on behalf of the customer base, not individual customers. Um, so we're scratching our itch and scratching our customers' itches, but really it comes down to just what do we think we need, and if we need it, a lot of other people probably need it too. And that's really just how it goes. Um, always hiring just when we need it, and um, we've been self-funded. We self-funded the company. We did take one investor in 2006, but it wasn't really for the money. It was more for the advice and the expertise and the exposure to the people that he knows. Um, but we turned down like 30 other venture capital uh, uh, solicitations or whatever before that because we didn't need it, but at this point we needed it. So we don't have these hard and fast rules necessarily. It's always a matter of like evaluating each thing individually, objectively, and kind of going that direction. Uh, I'm going to go all the way in the back, then I'll come back forward. Yes. By the way, do we, how much time do we have? Five minutes. Okay, I'll make these answers quicker. So if you don't have the domain knowledge, how do you kind of make the right decisions? Is that, how'd you go about it? Well, we make decisions um, in a different way in that we only work on things that we know, that we know. Um, and that's a conscious decision. People say, well, I can't do that. Sure you can, of course you can. You can do anything you want. No one told us that we couldn't do things or we could do things, we just do them the way we do them. So we always pick things that we know a lot about. We wouldn't build a, an app for the healthcare industry because we don't know anything about that industry. Um, however, if you, do have, if you do find yourself in that situation, you have to find someone who has an intimate knowledge of the domain and bring them, bring them in as early as you possibly can and let them you know, guide the ship in many ways. So um, when we used to do some client work and we didn't understand, um, uh, we did something for shopping.com, which was a, a price comparison thing, which I, I don't use. I just go to Amazon and buy stuff. Um, but maybe I could get it cheaper somewhere else. I didn't know a whole lot about that. So we really got them deep, more deeply involved in that project than we might in a typical client situation. So you always have, do have to find somebody who really understands it and get them involved as early as you can. Um, but I still think that the ideas still apply. It's that you have to build it, use it, and if you, can't under, if you can't evaluate it, find someone who can, tweak it, adjust it. Don't plan everything up front. Just build slowly, iteratively along the way, get people involved who know what they're talking about, know the domain, and just kind of find your way. It's like water running down a hill. It's going to find the, this is probably a terrible metaphor, so I'm going to stop actually there because it wasn't going to work. Um, but just find the path of least resistance. I don't know, that, that doesn't work either. But find someone who's involved and, and, and make, them, like, make them really important in the project. Uh, yes. Yes. You mean data like, are people using this or like, like user, uh, user testing, stuff like that? Or? So um, how does data factor into the decisions that we make? Um, th it doesn't factor in at all initially. So we build, we, we, we build something that we're comfortable with. You have to, we feel like we have a good level of taste and, and, and critique and, and critical observation about our products. So we build something that we're happy with first. We're our toughest customers. After that, though, when we put it out in the wild, um, we listen to people, and we don't actually look at data that much. What we look at 
is actual real feedback. Again, getting away from this idea of abstraction. Data is an abstraction in some ways from the real people who are using it. So when we put something out there, people tell us if it works or it doesn't work or they like it or they don't like it. They just send us emails and tell us. So we don't have to look at the data so much. Um, they actually tell us in, in, in words and then we can evaluate that. If we do need to look at data at, that, at a certain point, we do. But for the most part, we still look at people's actual feedback in English, really. Um, we don't really look at the data so much. I mean, our sysadmin and, and, and people who have to work with databases and work with infrastructure and stuff do look at data in terms of requests per second and things like that. We make adjustments based on things like that. But as far as evaluating if a product or feature is successful or not, we either ask people outright or they tell us outright. Um, we don't really look at the, at the data so much. Uh, I think maybe one, or, one more. One more. Uh, yes. What's my perspective on competitive analysis? We don't pay attention to the competition. Um, we know who they are, um, but we don't really pay attention to them. It's th we, first of all, we don't worry about things we can't control. We cannot control the competition. They're going to do what they're going to do, and it's ever-changing. There might be a new shop that launches something next week, and we can't do anything about it. So um, we're paying attention to our customers and not our competition. I feel like too many companies are obsessed with the competition. Pay attention to what your customers want. That's all. Those are the only people you have to keep happy. Um, if the competition's doing something that's particularly interesting and is actually having an impact on, on you, you're going to hear about it from people. You're going to hear about it from people who are leaving your product. For example, we have a cancellation survey. Anyone who cancels our products, they have an option to fill out a survey and tell us about why they canceled. And, and um, sometimes we learn about competitors there and we kind of, you know, quickly peek at what they're doing. But really, you know, if you, start, if you start paying too much attention to the competition, you start following them and you start reacting to them and not what you, what you want to do and what your customers really want from you. So um, we, don't, we don't pay much attention to it. And, and there are, the other great thing I'll finish with this is that, you know, anyone who's building web-based software or just software today, well, mostly web-based software, has such a huge advantage um, compared to traditional software builders of just 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the only way to be successful building software, unless it was shareware, was to have it on a shelf at a store and you had to have shelf space. The internet is the biggest shelf there ever was. There can be 100 successful companies doing project management software today. Maybe 1,000, I don't know. There can be a, a huge amount. So it's not a zero-sum game anymore. It's not like Microsoft owns the market and you've got to run. It's like, well, maybe we have our customer base of, you know, let's say tens of thousands of people who pay for our products and someone else has tens of thousands. That's plenty of room for a lot of people. So you don't really have to worry about beating. It's not so much about beating people anymore. It's about reaching customers because there's a lot of them out there today and a lot of them can find you much easier than they ever could before. So uh, I guess we're done. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, if, if anyone has any other questions that I didn't answer, you can always email me at jason at 37signals.com. And I'll try and get back to you within, sometimes within a day, but it may take a few days. So thanks again.